Morning, Open Door. Let's pray and we'll be seated. Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. And thank you for a time of worship this morning in which I feel like Daniel just gave us some songs that uh, expressed who you are in Christ and who Christ is and what he means to us as believers. So I praise you for the teaching that we receive, even in the songs that we sing. Be with us today as we study your word, open our eyes, uh, guide us by your spirit, and help us to understand and apply your word to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so thankful to be here. Um, so thankful for Open Door. Uh, you guys have been a total ministry to us because we have three little kids. And every Wednesday, every Sunday, and numerous other times, I feel like there are just so many ministers in this body who care about the body as a whole, who care about our kids specifically, and we are thankful for you. So thank you for ministering to us so far in our time here. Well, we're coming to end of year activities at Calvary University, where I'm the dean of students. Um, so it's an exciting time. Summer travel plans uh, in the... Uh, in the in the gun, I guess, for everybody who's uh, thinking about that. And for us, it's Calvary Weddings. Calvary Weddings is what we have to be prepared for. Well, one of the students asked us this week, do you expect this many weddings every year? Because we've got about seven or eight this summer that we're going to try and make, five or six at least. <laughs> Some of them are on the same day. We can't make them both. <laughs> but... Um, for one of them, we'll be headed to Colorado. We won't make it this time all the way to Arizona. Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? I'm sure quite a few of you here have been to the Grand Canyon. You've been to the Grand Canyon? Who's been to the Grand Canyon? All right, all right. That's awesome. A lot of us have been to the Grand Canyon. Growing up in Canada, I was born in Canada, lived there for five years, and then my family moved to the States. Uh, both of my parents are from the States. We moved back to the States when I was five years old. But growing up in Canada and then in the United States, I'd heard many stories about the natural wonders that the U.S. has to offer. Niagara Falls, kind of U.S., kind of Canada. So I got to see that one first, right? And we share that one. We share that one, right? I wonder if Canadians can go to that one right now. Just kidding. Sorry. Um, anyway, political jokes. Don't always go over so well. Um, heard lots of stories about the Grand Canyon, but didn't get to see it at a real young age. Heard lots of things like a mule ride down takes five plus hours. It's going to be a full day if you want to make a trip down into the Grand Canyon. It can be terribly hot traveling down or terribly cold in the winter. I actually had a friend who passed out on that trip and couldn't make it both ways. And it was, you know, a big problem. Vistas are just the most beautiful in the USA if you go to the Grand Canyon. Sunrise, if you could just be there for sunrise. Sundown, either or, right? It's a beautiful thing. Colorado River running through. Hiker's paradise. You hear all these stories. I heard all these stories before I finally got to see it. And though all those stories were true, and maybe you had this experience too. Maybe you heard about it. Maybe you saw pictures. And then those of you who have seen it, it's a little different when you experience it in person. And I think I was 13. My parents are here, so they may correct me later. But I think I was 13 when we went on a summer vacation and we got to stop by the Grand Canyon. 
And when you stop by the Grand Canyon on summer vacation, it's probably the thing that stands out on that trip, right? And you look over it and just say, oh, my goodness, what the Lord created here. It's amazing. So that summer vacation was unique. It's going to hopefully help us as we think about our passage today, which is Hebrews chapter 1, if you'd like to turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4. You just read it. Thank you for that, Brad. If you want to turn there, that'd be great. In hopes, uh, starting here, in, in hopes of continuing in the future, I think Pastor has a, a date or two in, in the plans for the future for me to speak, and we'll just kind of continue in Hebrews as I do that. So, let's read it one more time. God. After he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, just a bit of background for our book. We'll probably cover, you know, if I preach in Hebrews later, we'll cover some other background issues. But a brief background, this book is so unique. The author, we don't know. Uh, The date written, we don't know. The original recipients, we don't know. Okay? Brief, brief there. Was that brief enough? You know, we've got some guesses. We've got some guesses. The author, uh, some say Paul. Some say Luke. Some say Barnabas. Some say Apollos. There are good reasoning behind each of those, maybe. A little bit of good reasoning behind each. We don't know. We don't know. Um, The date written, we're not sure. I think it's before 70 AD because it seems that the author speaks about um, activities happening currently in the temple. So we think it's before 70 AD, likely after 60 AD, so probably in the 60s. Probably in the 60s. Original recipients, we know a little bit about them. We don't know who they are specifically, but we know a little bit about them. It's called the Epistle to the Hebrews. Okay, that helps. Last verse talks about Italy, you know, the believers in Italy speaking or uh, sending their regards. Okay, maybe that helps us a little bit. Doesn't tell us exactly who. <clears throat> so we don't know their exact character, but we know that they seem to be Jewish believers in Jesus. And I think that's key as we look at the book as a whole and uh, <clears throat> maybe even these first four verses. So, verse 1 God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. So, verses 1 through 4, one sentence. Okay, and that's appropriate in Greek, and if it's in English, uh, Calvary students don't use a sentence that long in your next paper probably, but in Greek it's totally appropriate. So it's kind of a run-on sentence is the way we would look at it, right? Um, the pro- this is the prologue that introduces the whole book. Almost all the topics covered here in the prologue, he's going to touch on again as he continues forward in the book later on. So we'll see these, these ideas again. The Greek actually begins with the first word is polumeros, 
Kai polutropos. Those are the first three words in the Greek. Polumeros. So poly, poly, okay, many, right? So it starts with many portions. My English Bible starts with God after he spoke long ago. Well, that many portions comes way later in the translations that we have. But in the Greek, whoever wrote it is trying to make a point in beginning with many portions. I wonder why. Why is he starting with that? I think he's talking about the fragmentary character of God's Old Testament revelation. Okay? So it was partial. The revelation that we received in the Old Testament was partial. There's an expected revelation that's going to be bigger, more important, finalized. We'll talk more about that going forward. I said polymeros kai polythropos. So these, it's kind of uh, poetic the way he begins there. Okay? And the second, the second term there is in many ways. So he begins with in many portions and in many ways. And then he goes on to say, this is how God revealed. In many portions and in many ways. So the many ways, possibly noting the many geographic places in which God revealed. It wasn't just in Israel. I mean, we're talking Italy, Greece, Turkey. We're talking all over kind of southern Europe, Middle East, and in many portions and in many ways. God revealed. It could also be referencing where, <clears throat> well, after the where, it could be also referencing the method of revelation. So you... He revealed through dreams. He revealed directly. He revealed in many different ways. So, our author, in many portions and in many ways. Then he continues from there. Both of those ideas stress the diversity of God's Word, written across dozens of centuries, in numerous different lands, by numerous different people, yet wholly consistent. Yet wholly consistent. How is that possible? So the author makes that clear, and then uh, we have God after he spoke long ago. You see that that's kind of past tense in the Greek. This spoke is aorist. It's one time in the past. It happened. Okay, It happened at a point in time in the past. God has spoken. This is the primary answer to every challenge to our faith that is made. Challenges from other religions, from Muslim traditions, from Jewish traditions, from, you know, where we live in the world, from Mormons, from atheists, agnostics. This is the primary answer. God has spoken. If we believe that God has spoken in his word and in his son, that changes everything. And if they say, well, let me at least consider that. Maybe God has spoken. That's the place often to take someone who would uh, question that idea. God, after he spoke long ago in the fathers, in the prophets, uh, excuse me, long ago to the fathers in the prophets. So these prophets... This is speaking of not just like minor prophets, prophets in that way. It's speaking of all the Old Testament writers in the whole. So we're we're including David, Solomon, Moses, Joshua, likely Job. We're including all of the Old Testament writers in this statement by the author. God spoke through these prophets. God spoke to them and through them. 
Okay, so verse 1 there. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways. Verse 2 continues. In these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed, heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Verse 2 begins seven key ideas about who Christ is. That's why I'm so thankful for how Daniel selected the music. We saw a lot about who Christ is in the music that we sang today. Seven is the number of perfection within Judaism. Within Judaism, that's kind of the perfect number, and our author says, here are the seven ideas about who Christ is. He says, in these last days, that's the beginning of verse 2, in my English translation at least, in these last days. Again, this is that uh, tense that says, it happened, okay, the aorist tense. Uh, This revelation is complete. It's not ongoing. He has spoken in these last days. He has spoken. It happened. This revelation is complete. Indicates that God is finished speaking in both of those cases. He spoke through the prophets. And now he has spoken in a unique way through Christ. Indicates he has completed that speaking. Now we'll talk about what will come after that as we go forward here. But... It indicates completion there. Um, It indicates uh, God's finished. And a note on this would be that Christ is the ultimate word of God. So when he spoke through Christ, when Christ came, this is God's, the, the ultimate word of God. The author could have used another tense if he wanted to say that that, uh, communication was ongoing, that that speaking was continuing. In history, he could have used another tense. Very easily, he didn't. He used the tense that says that happened, and it's done at a point in time in history. Why make a big deal of this? I'm making a big deal of it. I like making a big deal of some things that I see in the scriptures. And why am I making a big deal of this? It's because I think he is finished revealing through the prophets, Old Testament prophets. He's done. He is finished revealing through Christ. Christ has now ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father. We'll see that as we go forward. So what's left? The completion of the New Testament? For sure. For sure. And uh, there's a strong focus on that at the start of uh, chapter 2. Read these two verses to you, verses 3 and 4. Read this way. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord... It was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit in accordance with his will. So we have in those two verses something that is noting that the word revealed from God had to be confirmed by those who were with Christ. Those who were with Christ confirmed, yes, this is from God. So if we had Peter or Paul with us here today, and they said, okay, here's a new uh, prophecy, and this is confirmed, I would believe them. But since we don't have those who are with God in person, that becomes a problem for me. I think it suggests that in the apostolic age, that revelation would finish. We also see in uh, chapter 9, verse 26, and this is kind of the last time that I'm going to flip, 
Chapter 9, verse 26 reads this way. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So we see here that we've got a consummation of the ages that happened in Christ's coming, his death on the cross and resurrection. This is the end of the old covenant. This is entering the last days that lead to the return of Christ. 4,000 years of human history had all pointed to that moment. And it's the time when Messiah, Savior, God himself was revealed from heaven. The personal revelation of God. What is key about this personal revelation of God in Christ? What's really important about it? I think the key is the nature, as you see on that uh, slide. The nature of it. Uh, What's important about the nature of it? Jesus is the living word. Jesus is God in the flesh. That is his nature. I think it's also key that you see a completeness as opposed to the fragmentary many portions of the prophets in verse 1, as as opposed to that, that was fragmentary in nature, now we have the complete revelation of God in Christ. You have the culminating aspect that we just spoke of from chapter 9. The time of Christ and his witnesses and apostles is an important time in history. It's culminating. Then we have the finality. The next revelation of Jesus will be of Christ's return to come for his church. And then his return to judge the world. That's the next revelation of Christ that we'll have. I think that's that's the way I take this text. That's what I take this text to say. I actually received a text message last night from a student uh, with a video from a church that would be more apostolic, meaning that they believe in prophecy and, and other gifts happening today. And it was a little scary. Uh, they were getting slain in the spirit, and that student said, what about this? What about this? And I said, no, this is uh, not, not happening today, in my opinion. And some of that is based on what we're reading right here in Hebrews today. Um, they don't think about the fact uh, when we when we have groups that believe in prophecy happening today. We've got a lot of them here in Kansas City, right? Uh, I don't think they think about the fact that they're kind of one-upping Jesus. If this passage is saying that Jesus is a culminating, superior, final, um, complete. Revelation of God himself. And I think that's what we're seeing there. And anyone who says afterward, oh, I need to add to that. Let me bring something of importance in that Jesus didn't reveal from God. That's a scary place to be. It's a scary place to be. And uh, finally, I think we have this superiority there. We have finality and we have superiority. Nothing compares with this revelation, the revelation of Christ from God. Nothing compares with it. We're going to see that as we turn forward into verse 3. But any illustration would fail in trying to compare his revelation to anything else in our experience. 
The Grand Canyon is the best that I could do. Now, five years ago, my family and I got the chance to visit the mini Grand Canyon in the Texas Panhandle. I had a couple friends with us there. One was a foreign exchange student from Germany. That would be the blonde. <laughs> um, anyway, as some call this the mini Grand Canyon, and you know, I consider myself a bit of a Texan. I lived there for 13 years. My parents met in Texas. I've got family in Texas. Consider myself a, myself a bit of a Texan. Uh, you got to agree with me. Texas brands themselves pretty well, right? Yeah. Uh, everything's bigger in Texas. Don't mess with Texas, right? It's pretty good branding. Well, we've got a problem because everything ain't bigger in Texas. When we went to this Paladura Canyon, look at it. Oh, it's amazing, right? No, Paladura Canyon, 800 feet depth or 265 yards. Grand Canyon, 6,000 plus feet or about 2,000 yards. There's a little difference there. Everything's not bigger in Texas. And Christ is no mini-me version of God. Do, do those you know, canyons compare? Is, is that the mini-Grand Canyon in Texas? Mm, nice try. And Christ is not that version of God. He is no mini-me version of God. Not even close. Can we be sure that this revelation of Messiah is so much better and more trustworthy? Well, let's flip forward just one verse. In that next verse, he is the radiance of his glory. The exact representation of his nature. He is very God of God from the Nicene Creed. In Judaism, a name equals the totality of who a person is. And here in this passage, Jesus is called Son. And in the Greek, it's not articulated. That means it doesn't say a son or the son or there's no article there. It just says Son. The writer's helping us focus in on this title for Christ. He is Son. And the word heir, as we continue there, so um, it's still in verse 2. And these last days is spoken to us in son. I'm sure in your Bible it says his son. Mine says his son. But really it's just son. Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. The word for heir in the biblical Greek means lot, like the casting of lots. So was there a casting of lots for Jesus to accept this position? No. Um. Here, the only son, the only son of God, rightfully, is heir of all things. No one competes with him in hopes of being heir to anything in God's creation. Satan hoped to when he tempted it in the desert. That's kind of the goal. He wants to be heir. He wants those things. He can't compete. He made it. So shouldn't he be heir? That's the end of verse 2 through whom he also made the world. He made it. He is the heir. At a point in time, at creation, he made the ions, is the word in the Greek, and it's I think it's a pretty important term here to think about. It's usually translated world in our, in our English text, but the idea here is that he made forever 
He made the ages. He made eternity past and future. He made perpetuity. He made time. Sometimes we say we need to make time for something. He made time. Making things, making the world, that is nothing for him. That is nothing. He says it, and it appears. I know a few Calvary students who might like to have that ability. 20-page paper on the sovereignty of God. Boom, it appears. (laughs) That'd be nice, right? Uh, I know some parents in here who might like disciplined children. Boom, it appears. (laughs) Um, yeah, but that's the way God works. He speaks things into existence and it's not hard for him. And he made perpetuity, he made time itself. Verse three, we already hinted at it, but as we look at verse three, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. It's the first half there, this radiance, the Shekinah glory of God was radiated from God in Christ coming to earth. He is the radiance of God's glory. John and James and Peter maybe saw even more of this than others did at the transfiguration. But when Jesus talks about light and light being on the earth today, he talks about you and he talks about me. When's the last time you had a sense that you were radiating the glory of God in the places where you live and work? When's the last time that I sensed that? There have been a few times in history that I might have felt like, I really feel like God is using me here. Oh, this is wonderful, the way that God could use me. A broken vessel. But we are the light of the world. He said it. He's talking about you. Then we see that he's the exact representation of his nature. Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature. Distinctively God in character, nature, essence. God with us. Exactly. God with us. He upholds. This is in present tense. That means it's continuous. He upholds, meaning he carries all things forward continually in their appointed course. Now, I worked at Domino's in college. I think some of our college students have a lot better jobs than that. Maybe even our high school students do. But I worked at Domino's in college, and I remember one time I walked in, and I was going to be delivering pizzas, but it was slow. And one of the guys said, I think you can hold up this uh, glass of water for 10 minutes. Uh, Yeah, I'll give you 10 bucks if you can do it. Uh, Yeah, I can hold up a glass of water for 10 minutes. Hold that glass of water up, and about a minute in, shaking, about two minutes in, trying to hold it up. I can't even hold up a glass of water for 10 minutes. Have you tried it? I thought about calling one of the youth up and saying, hey, here's a glass of water. See what you can do, right? Um, Might have been a little distracting. I don't know. Um, Have you ever tried that? Hold it up. Don't let your arm drop. Don't do this. That's what I did. Um... It's impossible, I think. Okay, and even the strong men, no way. Doesn't happen. They've got too much mass in that arm to hold it up for 10 minutes. 
I can't hold up a glass of water for ten minutes. Yet this text tells us that he upholds all things. He carries forward all things. He is the one who carries all things forward in their appointed course. This should probably be important to us. How does he do it? We'll talk about some of the importance going forward, but how does he do it? He does it by the means of his spoken word. That's how he upholds all things. Genesis 1 through 3, you see his word is the precise instrument by which his power is carried out. So that might sound confusing there at the end of verse or in the middle of verse 3. He upholds all things by the word of his power. I don't know how your version translates it, but it sounds a little confusing. By the word of his power? What, what do you mean? What's going on there? That's just saying that his power is used via his word. That's that's what he is using to uphold these things, his word. <clears throat> Finishing verse 3 there, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He made purification. Again, it happened. It's done. He did it, and it's complete. This would be very familiar to the Jewish believer reading this letter. He sat down. The work of purification was complete. He sat down. Now this next uh, paragraph I stole from, from a friend. He sat down. What amazing words. They can only mean one thing. The work he did for us was totally and absolutely complete. You see, the Old Testament priests, they never sat down. Hour after hour, day after day, they offered sacrifices. They'd be covered in blood, and they'd make yet another sacrifice. The stench of burning flesh never abated. Why? Because those sacrifices could never do the job. They were never able able to fully pay the penalty. They looked forward to the coming of the perfect lamb. Who would pay the entire price for all of humanity in one final sacrifice. Now after he made purification, the sacrifice of himself, he took his blood to the true temple in heaven. That's what we see in Hebrews chapter 9. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands. Through his own blood, he entered the holy place. It was necessary that the heavenly implements be cleansed with the blood of Christ's sacrifice. And then Jesus sat down. What does that mean? It means that his provision for you, is full and complete. It means he's made you, believer, right with him. To be what you're supposed to be, and to be able to do what you're called to do. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. That's what we see here. This is the place of honor and authority. I don't think this is the place that is saying that he is now reigning in heaven as king. I do think it's a place of honor and authority. As he's sovereign over the universe, he totally is. Has his kingdom come? I would say no. But let's talk about it. 
The king, thy kingdom come is prophesied uh, throughout the Old Testament. And then in 2 Corinthians 4.4, we see that the God of this age, Satan, is blinding many to the gospel. He does this, um, excuse me, uh, does this world currently look like the kingdom of God that's uh, promised in the Old Testament, that's promised even in the New Testament? I don't think it does yet. The place according to Christ in his human nature is now exalted. I think that's what's going on there in verse 3. He is exalted to the right hand of the Father. So I don't think the kingdom's in place, but he is in an exalted place, and he's going to come back and rule on this earth for 1,000 years. That's what I would take uh, other passages to inform us on. Now moving forward into verse 4, and we're getting close to the end here. So... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So he's better than the angels, primarily in power. That's what's going on there. Rather than in goodness, like he's better. He is stronger. He is more. he, He is better than the angels. His superior, excuse me, his superiority is a grand focus of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is superior. That term better or superior is used 13 times in the book. He's better than the angels. His blood is better. His hope is better. The land that is promised is better. The life is better. It's a lasting possession that's better. Sacrifice. His sacrifice is better. His provision for our sin problem is better. What name? You might ask, because it says, having become much better than the angels, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Which one? He's got quite a few titles in the scriptures. Uh, I think we find out if we look forward there in verse 5. That's all we're going to do is just see it. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? Son. I think that's the term we're going for there. He's got a more excellent name than they. The angels are never called Son, in that way that Christ is called Son. Now, in conclusion, however strongly you have listened to the prophets in the past, hopefully we've all listened to the prophets, we must listen now to the par excellence revelation of God, Jesus. He revealed the Father to us. God has spoken. He is now done. He has done so with finality. And with completeness. Jesus is Son, heir, creator, sustainer, radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of the Father's nature. He is not a mini version like the Paladuro Kenya. If he's being called Son, excuse me, if his being called Son is so important and unique, how do you feel about your title? Son or daughter, if you have believed. The writer of Hebrews thinks that is incredible. Son. And how about your time? I hope you're a son or daughter. I hope you have believed. If you haven't believed, uh, come up and talk to pastor. Talk to one of the elders after the service. Today's the day of your salvation. Today's the day to be called son or daughter by the God of the universe. His word is so powerful that he, excuse me, all that he made is sustained by that word. 
And how about you, believer? Do you sense that power in your life? Do you sense God sustaining you? These verses say that he sustains all things. He carries all things forward. That means he's at work in you today, right now, carrying you forward by his word. He made purification for sins, and he sat down. In the seat of eminence, he is preeminent, greater than the angels. I would ask you maybe, and this is the final thing there, ask yourself this question in your life. Maybe when you're doubting, maybe when you're doubting salvation, your own salvation. Maybe when you're doubting your value in the eyes of God. Maybe when you're recognizing your own sinfulness. You might be overcome with guilt. You may be overcome with grief. I would ask you to maybe ask yourself this question. Didn't Jesus sit down? If it's finished, if you believe that, that affects every day of your life, every moment of your life, every struggle that we face. God, I'm going through this struggle. Oh, but didn't Jesus sit down? Yeah, he sat down. It's finished. It's paid for. Oh, praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you revealed to us in your word. To the author of Hebrews, by your spirit. And God, I just pray that you would help me day in and day out live as if you you have completed the sacrifice. And you are carrying me along toward what you would have for me. And I pray that you would do that in the lives of each believer here today and for those who don't believe that they might. We ask all this in Jesus' name.